Hey everybody, tonight we're debating Pascal's wager and we are starting right now with Dr. Liz Jackson's opening statement. Thanks so much for being with us, Liz. The floor is all yours. Awesome. Thank you so much, James. I just wanted to start off by saying thanks for having us on and also thanks to Graham for just being here and be willing to talk to me about this. Um, so I'll just tell the audience really quickly, James and I go way back and he actually introduced me to the Chipotle Venn diagram hack. So if you do not know what that is, Google it because you're missing out. So I just wanted to let everyone know publicly how awesome James's life hacks are. All right, let's jump into Pascal's wager. Um, so I, so I, so what I want to do basically is just talk a little bit about uh, Oppie's article in his book, Arguing About Gods on Pascal's Wager. It's one of the chapters in the book, chapter five. Um, and I have a lot to say, and I want to try to keep this to 10 minutes. So what I want to do is kind of skip the decision theory background. I'm not going to go through and explain the basics of decision theory. If you don't have that background and you want that background, I think James linked my YouTube channel in the description. And I have a video on there that's called Responding to Three Objections to Pascal's Wager. And I go over some decision theory background in that. So go check that out. Um, so I'm really looking forward to our, our discussion today. There's just two kind of preliminary things I wanted to say. The first is that sometimes I don't like the word debate because I really want all of our goal today to be getting at the truth. And sometimes making it into a debate makes it more about winning or losing. So I want us to just focus on what's the truth? How can we learn from each other and sort of set that tone for the night? Um, and so what I want to do is in this opening statement, basically give a super, super short background on like what is Pascal's wager and then focus on this chapter in arguing about gods, talk about a few things that I liked and I agree with in the chapter. And then I think I have six points of disagreement. I probably won't get to them all, but maybe I'll just mention the ones I don't get to really briefly. So hopefully that sounds good. All right. So what is Pascal's wager? Let's start with that question. Um, Pascal's wager is an argument that it is rational to believe in God or that you should believe in God. So it's not an argument that establishes that God exists. It doesn't raise the probability that God exists. I think that's a common misconception. It's not meant to give us evidence that God exists, but instead it's an argument that it's rational to believe in God. Um, and the most basic form of Pascal's wager basically says, look, there's two acts. There's two actions you could take. You could wager on God or you could not wager on God. And then there's two states of the world, two ways the world could be. God exists, God doesn't exist. So we have this nice sort of two by two matrix where we have four combinations and in decision theory language, these are called outcomes. So if you wager on God and God exists, things are infinitely good. You get to go to heaven. You have a relationship with God. And then on all the other possible outcomes, things are less than infinitely good. I'm actually stealing this from Oppie's chapter. I think it's a nice way of putting it. So if you wager on God and God doesn't exist, things are less than infinitely good. And um, if you don't wager on God and God doesn't exist, things are less than infinitely good. And if you wager on God and God doesn't exist, things are less than infinitely good. Um, and so if we have two assumptions, the first is that you ought to maximize expected value, which is a pretty common assumption among people working in decision theory. And then the second assumption is that your credence that God exists is non-zero and non-infinitesimal. Then we can get the result from sort of this setup and those two assumptions that you should wager on God. So this is, I think, a helpful starting point just to kind of get us all on the same page about what Pascal's wager is saying and what it's not. 
But my version of the wager is ultimately more complex than this. Um, in my version of the wager, I'll talk a little bit more about it in a second, but I think we have to make it more complex than just either God exists or God doesn't exist to account for the fact that there's various religions. Um, so I think we sort of need to put these religions into the decision table and make the, the Pascalian decision uh, matrix more complex. Uh, I also will say my wager is not a wager for Christianity. So in the version of Pascal's wager I give, my conclusion is not that you should be a Christian or that you should wager on Christianity. Wanted to clarify that. Okay, now I'm on part two, which is things I liked um, or agreed with in the chapter. And so one thing I definitely agree with is that wagering isn't for everyone. If someone has a credence of zero in theism or an infinitesimal credence in theism, so your credence is like one over infinity, um, then you shouldn't wager. So we can, you know, argue about the question of whether those credences are rational. That is something that Oppie talks about in this chapter a little bit. That is, and that's one of the six things I wanted to address that I don't know if I'll get to. But I do agree that if you have those credences, then you're not rationally required to wager. Um, there's also another case where your credence is vague over an interval that includes zero. And I agree there, it's indeterminate whether you should wager. Again, question, is, is that a rational credence assignment? To me, it does seem a little bit odd, but we can, we can talk more about that. Um, another thing I thought was super interesting in the chapter, uh, but I don't have like firm views on, but I just wanted to flag as super interesting is the relationship between the oughts that are delivered by decision theory and then the all things considered oughts. Um, I actually just think that's a super interesting philosophical issue and I'd love to see more philosophers working on it. Um, I do, you know, one thought, I guess, on this is that decision theory, it's a pretty flexible theory and it doesn't take a stand on what you build into the utility function. Like it doesn't take a stand on what's valuable. And so it can incorporate a lot of different kinds of norms and values. Um, but I do see the worry, like it kind of is this consequentialist framework. How is it, can it capture certain categorical norms? Maybe to do that, you would need a decision theory with certain side constraints or something. So I don't really have a lot more to say about that. I just thought that was a really interesting question that probably deserves more work um, among decision theorists and people just working on normativity, sorry, normativity in general. Um, the final thing that I thought was really awesome in the chapter was Oppie has this lottery ticket case and I'll explain what that is in a second, but I really liked the case. I thought it was really clever and I think it nicely illustrates a problem for certain infinite versions of the wager. So I'll talk more about that in a second. Okay, now onto my points of potential disagreement. How long have I been talking, James? Have I really been talking 10 minutes already? <laughs> Not quite, you've got, you've got a little bit yet. Okay, I'll try to be it's quick. Like, just keep going, it's fine. Okay, <laughs> so I have six points of potential disagreement. Um, I say potential because, you know, maybe we will end up agreeing more than we think, but just things that in the chapter um, yeah, I thought I didn't fully agree with. Okay, so the first is the point about the many gods objection and then the death Hayek mixed strategies objection. Um, and I think, uh, and, and in my paper, Salvaging Pascal's Wager, I explain this in more detail. So if you're interested in, in kind of a, a more beefed up version of this argument, um, I think both of these objections fail. And that's because I don't think all infinities are created equal, or they all shouldn't be treated equally in our decision making. Um, and so, you know, the very basic version of Pascal's wager I, I gave a second ago, it relies on this idea that the infinite trumps the finite, and that's kind of it. You know, if you wager on God and God exists, 
then things are infinitely good. And then on all the other outcomes, things are less than infinitely good. Um, and I just, I think that's overly simplistic. I don't think that version of the wager is going to work. And I think what we need to do is we need to actually incorporate different states of the world, including different religions into the wager. And I have an extended example of how this might work in that paper, Salvaging Pascal's Wager. Again, I'll reiterate, I am not arguing that everyone needs to, to wager on Christianity. But what I'm suggesting that we do is we decide between religions using the tools of decision theory. And there's gonna be a number of deciding factors here, but probability is gonna be one of the big ones. And the thought here is like, look, clearly we should go for the higher chance of getting something, sorry, infinitely, <laughs> infinitely good rather than the lower chance. And I have this two doors case I've given many times before where behind door number one, there's a 0 0.001 chance of getting infinitely, infinite utility. Behind door number two, there's a 0.999 chance. Uh, you should clearly pick door number two, even though both give you some chance at getting some infinite good, right? So I think at the very least, all else equal, we should go for the higher chance. But I think we could maybe even get a claim that's slightly stronger than just an all else equal claim too. Um, so, you know, there's this claim we should go for the higher rather than the lower chance at infinite utility. Then there's this question of like, how do we weigh the infinite utilities uh, against the finite ones? And this is where the lottery ticket case comes in that I think is, is really interesting. So you might think, well, so, so just to clarify, we're talking about expected values here. So you might think we're always gonna prefer the infinite expected value to the finite one. You might think prima facie, that seems pretty plausible. Here's where the case comes in. So he says, look, if there's an 1000 ticket lottery and the payout is positive infinity, I already hold 900 of the tickets what grounds are there for insisting that I should be prepared to betray all my friends and family in order to obtain another ticket? So here's the thought. This, I think this case is super clever. You're slightly, slightly, slightly raising the probability that you get this infinite good, but that does have infinite expected value. Um, at least prima facie, it seems like betraying your friends and family has some finite negative value. If infinites always trump finites, you should betray your family in order to get this lottery ticket, but that seems absurd, right? <laughs> um, so I think this is a great objection. I think it's actually kind of underrated. Um, and it's something I just want to think more about in general. So I have three potential replies to it, but I, I think it's a super interesting question. Like if infinite expected values always trump finite ones. And then if not, like what, like what are plausible principles that we can kind of get to capture the way we weigh these expected values against each other? Okay, response number one, and I think this response is most consistent with what we argued in the salvaging Pascal's wager paper. Um, so response number one is just to bite the bullet <laughs> and say this, look, we're actually really bad at reasoning about infinities. Um, they did studies and one study I think is super interesting. They basically asked people like how much they would pay to save, it was like 100,000 birds, a million birds or 10 million birds or something. And like each group said like $25 basically. So we're just really bad at reasoning about these large numbers. And I think kind of in our heads, we kind of just classify it as really big number, you know? Um, and so you could give an error theory here, right? And say, look, we're just really bad about reasoning about infinite expected values. It might seem like we really shouldn't you know, give up a good relationship with our friends and family to get this lottery ticket. But if it really does have infinite expected value, then we should. I'm not sure if I buy that. I think it's an interesting 
potential response, but I definitely feel conflicted about it. <laughs> um, so, but that's one response. The second response would be to find some kind of alternative principle about when infinities trump finites. And so maybe not say that every infinite expected value trumps every finite expected value, but clearly sometimes infinite expected values trump finite expected values. Like I would pay a pretty large sum of money to get an infinite good. And I would pay a pretty large sum of money even to increase my chance at getting an infinite good. And so maybe like one thing we could do is have some kind of probability threshold. So the probability you get the infinite good needs to, you know, have this value X and then that's where, when the trumping starts to happen. Um, and this would also help with some other objections to Pascal's wager too, like Pascal's mugging, some people might be familiar with. Um, but I think, you know, in general, yeah, we would need to figure out some way to make that principle not sound ad hoc. So that's a potential worry for that, but um, potentially a way we could go. Then the third move is just to, to go to a finite version of the wager. So kind of push infinities out of the way and instead uh, treat the value of a relationship with God or the value of heaven as kind of like an arbitrarily large finite value. Uh, Oppie brings up some worries for that in, in the paper. I may or may not get to responding to those because I'm already uh, basically out of time. <laughs> so maybe I'll say like one more thing and then just say the things that I don't have time to say and then anything you want me to say more about, I'm happy to say more about. So the second worry that uh, Oppie raises for this idea that we should go for the higher probability of an infinite value is like, how does this have practical import? So even if it rules out certain things like maybe super low probability religions or certain mixed strategies, how do we know what actions are most likely to lead me to wager on God? And so I think this depends on the kind of wager you're going in for, but I basically, normally in my work, distinguish between two kinds of wagers. There's the doxastic wager, which is a belief-focused wager, and it basically says you should take actions that make it more likely you'll believe in God. So you should pray, read religious texts, read arguments in favor of theism, immerse yourself in a religious community with the eventual goal of coming to believe in God. There's also a commitment-based wager, that basically sort of pushes belief to the side and says, no, the important thing in wagering is making a commitment to pursue a relationship with God. Um, and in practice, this might actually look sort of similar to the things I was saying about the doxastic wager, but your goal isn't necessarily to come to believe in God, it's to, to commit to pursuing a relationship with God. And I would think that doing either of these things would at least raise the probability of getting something infinitely good and I think, too, um, and this regards the motives question, like, is this Pascal's wager necessarily involve bad motives? I think it's not just about going to heaven, but I think you would you could totally take the wager because you think it would be a good thing to know an all-powerful, all-good being if, if God does exist. So even the small possibility, the small chance that God exists, you could say, because it would be so good to know God if God existed, um, I'm going to, you know, either take actions to try to believe in God or take actions to... Uh, you know, uh, make a commitment to God. Um, so, okay, so now I'll just briefly go through the other five things and then I will stop talking. <laughs> so number two was what I basically just said. It involves the motives in uh, involved in Pascal's wager. I think, of course, you can take Pascal's wager with bad motives. No one's denying that. But I think there is a way to take Pascal's wager that does demonstrate good motives. And I actually have a whole paper on this. It's called Faithfully Taking Pascal's Wager. You can download that on fill papers for free if you want um and i basically not only argue that pascal's wager there's a way that of taking pascal's wager that involves good motives but also that it can demonstrate genuine faith in god um and i kind of draw on some recent accounts of faith okay 
Third thing I was going to talk about, I'm just going to go through these super quick, responding to some of the worries about finite wagers. And my thought was, if they're more of like a model to uh, basically model the value of heaven the best way that we can, even if they're not like literally perfect, I still think, you know, you might think decision theory itself is just a kind of model anyway. So I think we could put finite values in to represent the value of heaven without having to commit to the idea that heaven is literally only finitely good. Um, fourth thing, you seem to rely quite a bit on a historical point, this idea that Pascal says that reason cannot decide um, throughout the chapter. And I guess I had two worries. I'll just be super brief. One, I guess it's not clear to me that even as a historical matter, Pascal thinks we're like totally in the dark or we have no evidence that bears on theism. Um, I think the point is more that reason doesn't require us to land one way or the other, or reason is not going to fully settle the matter, but we might still have some evidence. Um, and I actually think if a kind of epistemic permissivism is true, this can actually solve some, some big problems for Pascal's wager. Second point is that I'm, at least personally, a lot less interested in the historical question than I am just the question of whether we can create a good argument that we should wager on God, whether or not that's kind of what Pascal actually made or not. So you can call it Pascal's wager, you cannot call it Pascal's wager, I don't really care. I'm just interested in this idea that we can be rational to believe in God or commit to God, even if the probability that God exists is low. Um, I was gonna say something about like rational creeds and preferences and decision theory, so we can talk more about that. There's this tension between do the credences and preferences that we input into decision theory have to themselves be rational? Or do we just take whatever creeds and preferences you happen to have and throw those into decision theory? And I'm actually okay with going either way. And I recognize that if you put rational constraints on credences and preferences, that does take some additional argumentation. So that came up a little bit in the chapter and I thought that was interesting. And then my final point um, had to do with this idea that we either couldn't or shouldn't adjust our either beliefs or credences in accord with our practical reasons. So I've actually argued that if epistemic permissivism is true, both of these objections kind of uh, don't, don't work. But I also have other responses to these objections that I could say more about if you're interested. So that was all I had to say. Sorry, that was super long. <laughs> Thank you very much, Liz, for that opening statement. And folks, I want to let you know if it's your first time here at Modern Day Debate, we are a neutral platform hosting debates on science, religion, and politics. And we hope you feel welcome no matter what walk of life you are from. And so with that, we will kick it into open conversation. We'll let Dr. Oppie take the lead in that, starting us off. So thanks so much for being with us here as well. Graham, and the floor is all yours. Okay, so thanks, Liz. Um, that was that was really well. There's a lot there. It's going to be hard to choose what exactly what we're going to um, talk about. Uh, so maybe one place to start is um, just thinking about the kind of setup of the wager argument. So sometimes the way that they're set up, they're set up in with you. I mean, in general, in decision theory, we're going to have actions and we're going to have states and so the things that are on i'm imagining visualizing a table the things that are on the action side of the table actually have to be actions and so it was quite common up until about 20 years ago for people to write believe that god don't believe that god into that side of you know into that part of the table and I think that the kind of straightforward objection to that is that those are not actions. I can't just um, right now perform the action of believing something where I, um, 
don't have any other considerations going for it other than perhaps something like the Pascalian calculation. So uh, when you were describing the setup, you didn't talk about belief, you talked about wagering. Uh, and I think that that makes a difference to the way that the table then comes out because there's a gap that that's now going to open up. Suppose I wager and God exists, but my wagering fails, right? Then I won't get the reward. And so I have to, when I'm thinking about that, the outcomes now, there have to be more columns in the table because uh, there's these two possibilities that I don't wager, but I end up believing. And I do wager, but I don't end up believing that you have to take into account. And the reason why this matters is going to be that when you think about now calculating the, doing the calculation of the expected value, that against both wagering and not wagering, there's going to be an infinite value in there, right? And if you, if you think about what the tables look like, God exists, you end up believing. It can go by two routes, either by your wagering or by your not wagering. And so it seems as though in order to get a result out here, the probability that's going to be most important is how you weigh the likelihood of success, right? What's the most likely route for you to get to, um, I'll say the end state is end up believing, I don't care, believing, commitment, whatever we want to call it. And I have sort of two feel, <laughs> two sort of hunches about that for lots of people. One is that it will just be completely unclear to them, you know, what might be um, whether kind of directly argue, aiming for it is going to be more likely to get them there versus just going on as they are, right? If you look at all of the data about um, conversions and transformations and things like that, it's not clear that there are kind of methods here or that we've got much evidence or data that's going to help us um, decide what to do. So, so one of the things that I've been thinking about lately is this thought that you kind of end up here in a, without much reason to think that you've got any guidance for action, that um, anything that you might do is about as likely to succeed as anything that you might not do. And so the wager argument is going to break down at that point. So I thought I'd ask you what you thought about that. So the reason why I'm mentioning this, it relates to, I think, to your discussion in the paper, salvaging Pascal's wager in the following way, that you, at a certain point, you say, there's all these kinds of considerations. We can just build them in by adding a multiplying factor. But this particular consideration doesn't work that way. So that was the, the reason why I'm bringing it up. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of what you said. So uh, I don't think we're, we're totally in opposition. I, I agree that uh, there's at least a big question about whether we can just believe it well. And at least in a lot of cases, it seems like we can't. Um, so I'm actually one of those really weird philosophers. I know that uh, most people don't agree with this. But I do think in certain cases, we have significantly more control over our beliefs than you, you might have thought. Um, and so I actually think this is when we're kind of 
So when we're in a, a permissive case and to some level sort of aware of that fact, we might not have the concept of episodic permissivism, but you might think of a case where you're really torn between, um, you know, should this thing be legal or not, or is this thing moral or not? And you're really like, you could really see it going either way. Um, and I actually think like this is kind of true in the action cases as well, arguably like when you're torn between going to law school and going to medical school, you might think those are the cases where it's more clear that we exercise free will than kind of just like our daily habitual actions where, you know, just like me waking up and brushing my teeth is similar to like me just believing like one plus one equals two. Like I don't really have at least, you know, the level of control over that. It kind of just happens to me. But when I'm really torn between two things, um, it's a lot less clear that I don't have at least a stronger level of control over my beliefs. And so one thing I try to argue is that if you're in the situation with respect to theism um, and you're really torn, like, does God exist? Does God not exist? There's some arguments for both sides. Um, it's not at all clear to me that we don't have more control over our belief in that case. And I think that's consistent with saying a lot of a lot of our other beliefs we, we don't have control over. Um, so that's one thing to say. I think, though, like that might not hit at the deepest point of what you said, though, because I really think there's this big question, which is like, what does God want from us? Or like, what does wagering look like? And is that belief or is that something else? And I think at least in the Christian theological tradition, belief by itself might not be enough. There might be some kind of works or actions that at least um, are the result of a genuine Christian commitment. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I think here, here's maybe the, the big, I think a big choice point and maybe something that we would just disagree on. But I think that making a genuine commitment to God, really seeking God, um, praying, going to church, reading Holy Scriptures, doing all these things raises the probability that you get infinite utility. And if you're in one of these cases where you're really torn about what to believe, and I think actually doing these things could Bring you, bring you to one of these cases where you really are in a permissive case and you could believe that God exists and believe that God doesn't exist. And, you know, really you could be rational either way. Um, then, then I think, you know, this could even be a matter of belief. So yeah, I think, you know, believing in God because you're in a permissive case or making that commitment to God does raise the probability that you'll get infinite utility. Um, and, and, you know, this might be a case where like our intuitions just conflict because you might just say, it's just not clear to me that that does raise that probability. Um, and then, you know, we could have a whole debate about what God's intentions would be. But I guess the way that I view God, God is personal and God wants a relationship with us and it would raise the probability you get infinite utility if you kind of wholeheartedly seek God. So um, you might just say, that's not clear to me. And <laughs> there's, it's not clear to me that that would raise that probability more than just, you know, going on with my life. And then we might be at a standstill, but I'm kind of curious what you think about that. Yeah. So, so there are lots of different Christian traditions and uh, I mean, lots, lots of different, even, so I'm now just going to kind of restrict attention to kind of Christianity for a bit. Uh, some of which I think would, you know, I mean, so suppose, for example, that there's just an elect and it's kind of already determined who's going to go to heaven and who isn't. The most I could be doing if I was um, doing the sort of things that you were suggesting was sort of garnering evidence that maybe I'll go to heaven. But if you're a kind of causal decision theorist, right, you're not going to be very interested in that, right? So, yeah. so, so it really isn't obvious. I mean, it's not just sort of um, Christianity tells you the answer here. There are different parts of the Christian tradition or different 
I don't know what different denominations or whatever you want to call them, that are going to give you rather different answers, I think. Yeah. So if like a really strong kind of Calvinism is true, then um, yeah, I agree with you. And I, I do think some Calvinists probably have stories similar to maybe what compatibilists would tell about why our actions really do matter and they really do change the probability. And I'm not really an expert on that. So I think some at least self-identified Calvinists would want to say that, you know, wagering on God would raise the probability. But I acknowledge if like a really uh, deterministic version of Calvinism is true, then you're probably right. Can I pause for two seconds? I am being told that my audio is really bad. Is that true? I'm not seeing, I'm not recognizing as bad. Okay. So I sound okay. Okay. I just wanted to make sure. I think you're good. I, I, I turned it down a little bit, but I just heard someone said it was super scratchy, but maybe it's fine. <laughs> I think I'm good. Okay. It's the I internet. They'll always find something. Go ahead. You're good. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, you're right that there are certain denominations and, and certain, you know, uh, worldviews on which you couldn't raise that probability, right? But I still think in some kind of all things considered sense, you can raise that probability. Um, so I guess that's how I would respond. <laughs> right. So, and maybe that's right. Um, it it kind of now depends on, well, when we take a wider purview and we think about all the gods now, um, what you think um, that the outcome is going to be, right? So, yeah. I mean, maybe we could go back and talk about. Um, so, one of the things you said early on about the many gods objection, yep. and your reasons for thinking that it's not um, a, a significant objection. Uh, so, I don't know. Maybe maybe it will be useful for you to say something about that. Yeah, I mean, maybe I should also clarify too. So I guess I don't think that it's insignificant in the sense that we can just dismiss it or it doesn't matter. Um, I guess what I do think is that uh, in spite of the fact that there are many gods, we can still use something like Pascal's reasoning. And I'm not really interested in debating about whether it's close enough to Pascal's reasoning to be considered Pascal's major. I don't think you care about that either. Um, but some kind of decision theoretic reasoning that takes into account the afterlife uh and and we can still use that reasoning to to decide between various religions and sort of the way that will go will de depend on a couple things but one of the important things that will depend on is is the probability of these religions so in the same way i gave this example where there's a ch there's a 99% chance of getting an infinite good and there's a 0.1% chance of getting an infinite good and clearly you should pick you know, the 99% chance in the same way, you should wager on the religions all else equal that, that you think has the highest probability. So it's kind of incorporating the many gods worry into Pascal's wager, rather than saying like, it doesn't matter or it's irrelevant. Um, and again, my argument is not that people should wager on Christianity. My argument's only that you should wager on Christianity if you think Christianity is most likely to be true. So you could combine the wager with an argument that raises the probability of Christianity or another religion, um, and then you should wager on that. But uh, it's not an argument for wagering on a certain religion. And then maybe the final thing I'll say, and then I'll turn it over to you, is there's this possibility, and, and you talk about it in the chapter, that um, atheists go to heaven and theists go to hell, whether because there's a unorthodox God that sends atheists to heaven and theists to hell, or 
maybe that's just how the world is or whatever, doesn't really matter. Um, and so the thought is, well, if you assign that a higher probability than you do kind of all the traditional religions, then we're not saying you're irrational. Like you can go on and, and be an atheist. And our main, the main thing we wanted to push in that paper is we want you to pay attention to these um, these afterlife consequences in your decision making. And we think, in fact, probably a lot of people won't assign that a higher probability than the traditional religions. And, you know, we, you could go on to try to give an argument for that. Again, like I said, probability raising of certain religions. But in that sense, that is one way that I think you could um, accept all of our reasoning, but still be rational to be an atheist. So one, one thing that's sort of interesting at this point, um, so uh, since Brescia wrote his book about Pascal's wager, it's mm -hmm. been sort of common to think about this, at least in some circles, in terms of audiences that might be persuaded by Pascal's yeah. wager and audiences that might not be. And uh, I, I wonder about the size of the audience or about the makeup of the audience of people who are kind of apt to be persuaded by Pascal's wager. Because for a start, what I, I imagine that you can take out of consideration all the people who already believe and all of the people who are kind of confirmed naturalists or atheists or whatever. And so I wonder what sort of population size is going to be left. Now, you might think this doesn't matter. You know, I mean, in theory, all that matters is that there might be one person that this was a good argument <clears throat> for. But, but uh, I wonder whether you've whether you have even have any thoughts about how you might work out <laughs> how significant this argument might be. Yeah, I mean, it's a nice question, although it is kind of a sociological and empirical question and we're a priori philosophers, right? So uh, in one sense, like, yeah, like I, I could just punt and say, I don't know. Uh, but, but I do think it's interesting and relevant just because the less people, the smaller my audience is, maybe arguably, maybe this isn't true, but maybe the less interesting the argument is, at least in some sense, right? Um, so, so I think it's an it's it's an interesting question, and I guess, yeah, I'm not. So maybe you could say a little bit more about this idea that confirmed naturalists. Uh, maybe maybe you could just say even what you mean exactly by that. So if you mean someone that like assigns zero probability to theism or all religions or uh, infinitesimal, and then there's like that interval case that I mentioned briefly. So like those cases, yeah, but I I would think um, depending on, I mean, maybe not every single one, but there could be people that do believe atheism is true. They just don't have a, a credence of one in atheism or a credence of zero in theism, right? Um, and, and Pascal's wager could, could entail that they ought to seek to believe in God or make a commitment to God. Um, so it, I guess it just depends on what you mean by confirmed naturalists, yep. but I would like to think that a lot of naturalists, even if they do believe naturalism is true, they don't have a credence of one in it in the same way that they definitely don't have a credence of one in theism, even though I believe that it's true. So I guess I was thinking, so this will be kind of stipulative, but I was thinking <laughs> of the confirmed naturalists as the people whose um, values and credences had it come out that um, that the thing to do was to go on being a naturalist or a, you know an atheist 
or whatever when you do a wages style calculation because there's lots of i mean there are lots of things here that you might and and you have to kind of weigh up all of the the compete i mean there's probability to distribute over a whole lot of outcomes right um and the thing that comes out at the top uh might be um might just be some sort of naturalism it depends on how it goes so i'm thinking for example you in your own calculation you borrow from sober and somebody else uh, mm-hmm. a kind of naturalistic way of getting infinite utility I mean, there's kind of stories you can tell maybe uh, there are many universes and we kind of master technology for mm-hmm. um, prolonging life forever and hopping between universes as they wear out so that we can mm-hmm. have uh, infinite value and it's not clear that what probability you should give to that but maybe if you're a naturalist you're going to think that that's a little bit more likely than any theistic hypothesis and so that's going to be uh, even if you don't think that's very likely <laughs> in itself you still might think um, the best thing is just to go on being a naturalist right? so that was sort of the no. idea that I had in mind it wasn't one about um, the size of the credences or giving zero to all the theistic hypotheses or mm. something like that. Yeah, I like the the Black Mirror style cases. Those are fun. Um, yeah, I mean, here's an interesting thought. I'm just curious what you think about this, but like, what about some kind of um, like bet hedging, right? So it might be that uh, on naturalism, if some, if I can upload my consciousness to a computer that exists forever for some reason, then I could have infinite utility or whatever. But I guess um, I'm thinking like do that and wager, right? Like I don't, I guess, you know, pursue uploading your consciousness. I don't see any reason that would conflict with at least a lot of them, but you know, also being a religious person and uh, wagering on many of the major religious traditions. So if there's a way to consistently, you know, pursue multiple sources of infinite utility, like go for it, right? Like the 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 more the better. Let a thousand flowers bloom. Upload your consciousness and convert. You know, <laughs> what do you think about that? <laughs> so, in the calculation of expected value, are you, is is that going to rate? Is that going to rate higher? Because the way that we were thinking about it, there's all these outcomes, and what you're supposed to do is maximize expected utility by picking the act that you know, comes out with the highest score. So you're now thinking that there, that there are sort of these individual acts and then there are combina- combined acts mm. as well. Is it something like that? That's the idea. So, Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't see why, why we should rule it out, um, at least as an in-theory possibility. So, yeah, if, like, two things are, are mutually exclusive, you can't do both at the same time or something, then, yeah, you yeah. have to pick. Um, you might think you like can't convert to, to two different religions at the same time, although that's, I think, up for debate, right? Uh, but I guess I'm not seeing any reason, although I might just not be thinking of it, to think I couldn't pursue infinite utility in both a religious way and yeah. a secular way. Yeah. So so with the religions, it, I mean, pursuing many religions at once, mm-hmm. uh, maybe that's going to come back to questions about belief. Right, you mm. can sort of be a, a Buddhist on Mondays and a Hindu on Tuesdays and a Christian on Wednesdays. Uh, if you don't have to worry about um, sort of consistency over time, you could, you know, you could, you could really, you could have one day 
every 10 years for each of rather a large number of religions. Um, and it, I mean, do you think that that could be that, you know, that's what Pascal's wager could recommend? I don't want to rule it out. I mean, right. But I do think, uh, you know, it depends. It's just going to depend on your credences and your preferences, right? But if you assign, a, like, let's just say you you think one religion is significantly more likely than others for some reason, um, and then you think there's a good reason to think that if that religion's true, God would want some kind of more wholehearted devotion, um, then maybe that would be a reason to not like hedge your bets in that way, right? But if certain religions are consistent. Again, I, I'm like, I think if, if there's certain religions that are consistent, if you if you can genuinely practice those um, and hedge your bets, I guess I don't want to, I don't want to say that that you, you know I don't want to rule that out either. So, um, I guess it just depends. Would be the, <laughs> the answer. Hmm. Yeah, it it, it does sound unlikely yeah to me i mean, one of the one of the things about it is that what's really mattering here is the the kind of absolute driver is you want the infinite utility right and you're just kind of doing whatever you can in order to get it uh well maybe that's not fair like you're it's not doing whatever you can because but it's you're taking reasonable steps to try to secure it or something like that yeah um yeah, it's interesting whether you should think. I mean, this, this is going back to other older objections to Pascal's wager, whether you should really think that that should be what's governing the decision that you're making in some sense, all things considered, not just sort of doing the calculation. Yeah. I mean, another thought too, so I mentioned I have that paper on like taking Pascal's wager and, and the motives involved and whether those would please God. And you might think like, if you take this, like pursuing as many religions as you can at once to maximally hedge your bets thing too far, then the motives start to be more questionable. And then we get this worry, like, is this something God would, would want in the first place? Um, because I do think in that paper, I try to carve out a way of taking Pascal's wager where I think it really you know, does demonstrate good motives. Um, but I also say there's definitely ways of taking the wager that don't seem to demonstrate good motives. So, you know, we can argue about that and there's a lot of virtue ethics we could even talk about there, right? But it does kind of seem like maybe the more, the, the further we go down this path, the more that might become a, a worry as well. Okay, so maybe we should, I mean, there's, there's lots of other things we haven't discussed. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned at one point, so I've made a list of the things that you, that you wanted to discuss about finite wages. I'm not sure. So now I don't remember because it's a long time since I wrote the book. I don't remember exactly what I say, but I thought that the point that I make there is just that once you move to finite wages, um, as opposed to the standard old-fashioned version of the wager where you've just got a, a single infinity, right, Mm -hmm. uh, the, the outcome now just depends absolutely on the um, precise values that you give to the probabilities and to the utilities, what the outcome's going to be. 
And so you don't have anything that looks very much like a kind of knockdown argument anymore, which mm. sort of felt like originally that was kind of Pascal's intention. That uh, to the extent that he was giving an argument at all, I mean, there's a whole question about actually what he was doing when he, but parking that to one side and imagining he was trying to give an argument, it was meant to be a kind of universal argument. Whereas the finite wager is clearly not going to be that. Yeah, and I thought, I thought that was the point that I made, but I can't remember. Maybe I said some other things as well. Yeah, I mean, I might have latched on to other things, and you also said that. So let me try to see if what my notes said. Um, I mean, I can I can respond to that point too, and basically I I agree. So look, I mean, there's kind of two ways of going, especially. Can it, kind of in light of this mini gods mixed strategies worry one is to try to keep infinities in the wager but modify it in some way maybe modify the way we're doing the calculations um and still have an infinite version of the wager but just a more complicated one and you know the nice thing about that going that way is you can get a little bit of a stronger conclusion so something like maybe not in all cases but in a lot of cases uh, most people with sort of like a standard like utility function and a standard credence function should wager on the religion that they think is most likely to be true. That's not exactly right, but something along those lines. Um, and then if you move to the finite wager, I mean, there are some nice things about it. You get rid of the problems caused by infinities. Um, but I think that you're totally right that you get a significantly weaker conclusion. So it's going to depend on what the finite values in question are, right? But the the conclusion is just going to be that you should wager on God or on a certain religion if your credence meets a certain threshold. And that threshold is going to depend on what the values are. So, you know, Mike Rota has a version where that threshold is as high as 0.5. Um, I think that's pretty high. So if I were going to do a finite wager, I would try to get the threshold down as much as I can by using larger finite values, but at the very least, you're going to be able to escape the wager by just having your credence lower than that, right? Um, and I think that's easier to do than, you know, giving it a credence of zero or infinitesimal or whatever. So, so yeah, there's kind of a choice point here. I tend to like to try to salvage the infinite wager, but there are definitely problems that arise, some of which we've already touched on. And so I still think it's potentially an interesting result if, maybe someone with like a 0.1 credence in theism or in a certain religion should still wager on that. Like that's like at least still kind of controversial and interesting. So I agree that it's, it's weaker. Um, but you know, I think it's, it's not like a, a, a trivial point or something either. You know, there's, there's some interesting stuff to pursue there. Yeah. Okay, so what else? So, so we mentioned permissivism in passing, at least. So I'm kind of tempted by permissivism, I think. Nice. <laughs> uh, I, I think that it's, I mean, you know, the kind of Roger White view where evidence, there's only one thing you can believe given any data set, right, any, any set of evidence, strikes me as kind of implausible. Uh, yeah. And I assume that it strikes you as kind of being implausible too. Um, I'm not sure um, how much I connect that to Pascal's wager. <laughs> so, mm. um, so it's sort of interesting. I haven't really thought about that. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to to talk and hopefully I don't talk for too long because I, I, I just <laughs> worked on a paper on this. Okay, so here's the thought. Um, so the first thing to maybe clarify is that you need um, in, intrapersonal permissivism rather than interpersonal permissivism for this to be an interesting thing for the wager, at least I think. So given my evidence, uh, I can adopt theism or atheism, or I can adopt theism or agnosticism or whatever. So it's not like uh, we have, you know, me and Graham have different epistemic standards. So I can be a theist and he can be an atheist, even if we share evidence. No, it needs to be about a single individual. So it's a slightly stronger version of permissivism. And I admit that not everyone's going to be on board with that. But I think if we, if we assume that or argue for that, I guess, if that's in the background, I think we can get some really interesting results uh, when it comes to two objections to Pascal's wager. Oh, and then I'll say too, we don't just, we need that to be true about theism. Um, and I guess then we could talk about bringing various religions to this as well. Although in that paper, I kind of want to try to set the mini gods thing aside. Um, so so in, interpersonal permissivism about theism is true. Um, so here's the two objections that I think we can get a really interesting response to. The first is what's known as the um, impossibility objection. So the idea that I can't wager because I can't control my beliefs. And then I think sort of people defending the wager in the literature say, okay, okay, no, 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 that's fine. Let's just make it about action, you know? So it's kind of this concessive response. And, you know, I'm open to that response, like commitment wagers, I'm cool with those, right? But I think we can get a, a way more, a way stronger and more interesting response. Um, so that's objection one. And then objection two is what I call the irrationality objection. And so it's like, even if you can wager and you do have that control over your beliefs, it's irrational to believe on the basis of a practical reason. So if you give me $100 to believe something and then I believe it, I shouldn't, that's irrational, right? I should be following my evidence. I can't just believe it because you gave me some, some reward or benefit, right? So if evidentialism is true, it seems like we're violating evidentialism. And so here's what's cool about the kind of permissivism I was talking about. Um, I think it really makes space for really strong and direct responses to, to both this impossibility objection and this irrationality objection. So one thing that people have talked about uh, apart from Pascal's wager that I try to kind of bring in to Pascal's wager is like, so in the doxastic voluntarism literature, that's basically just the question of whether for the audience, the question of whether we can control our beliefs. It's very, very, very popular to say we can't among philosophers. And in fact, it's it's probably now considered the orthodox position, at least cont in contemporary philosophy. Interestingly, not the orthodox position in hist historical stuff, but definitely the orthodox position uh, among contemporary people working on this question. And what a number of authors have noted is that most of the arguments for doxastic involuntarism, that we can't control our beliefs, don't really seem to be considering the possibility of permissive cases. So they're like, look, oh, you know, you see that P is true, to believe P is to believe that P is true. So you have no choice but to believe P. So belief just happened to you, right? Um, but they kind of seem to be assuming that in every case, our evidence sort of determines this one clear attitude that we should take. And so beliefs just kind of happen to us. And they don't really think about the possibility and, and I feel like they should think about this possibility 
that you might just be really torn between two options and rationality might leave it open, which of those options you should pick. Um, and one thing that I think is really interesting is that Peter Van Inwagen actually talks about this in his autobiography about how he became a theist. And he says, I could see the world as self-sustaining and I could see the world as created by something outside of itself. And he said, I kind of move, I could move back and forth in between these ways of seeing the world, like that duck rabbit picture. Some of people in the audience, you might've seen the illusion where you can see it as a duck, see it as a rabbit. He says he could kind of move back and forth like that, like seeing the world in a theistic way and seeing it in an atheistic way. And I think that's the kind of case I'm thinking of when I say that if you're in a permissive case and you have some level of awareness of that fact, I think we have at least a stronger level of control over our beliefs. Um, and in the paper, I say either that's, I'm open to that, it might be direct control and the same kind of control we have over raising our hand. But if you think that's too strong, I think it's at least some kind of, I, I, I give this label, I call it semi-direct control. So there's things that we have control over even though they're not what's called basic actions. They're things that you can't just do in one immediate act, like raising your hand or kicking a soccer ball or opening a door. Things like, you know, cooking dinner, going on a run, writing a paper. Um, sometimes these things even happen over, over a period of time. It seems like we have control over them. They're not like involuntary or something, but it's not something we can just do in an immediate act. And so then I argue that if you're in a permissive case, either it's direct control or it's this kind of semi-direct control. Um, do you want me to keep going and say, I mean, maybe I'll just say the yeah. other thing because it's super quick. If you're in a permissive case and theism is among the permitted attitudes, then it's not going to be irrational to be a theist. By definition, theism is, is one of the attitudes that's permitted for you. Um, and it's not even clear to me that you're violating evidentialism because your evidence underdetermines what you ought to believe. Your evidence like leaves it open. Um, and so I don't see a good reason to think practical factors can't break epistemic ties. So yeah, if you give me a bunch of money to believe one plus one equals three, that's one thing. But if two attitudes are really epistemically tied for me, then it's not at all clear that I can't believe one on the basis of a practical reason that it's not clear that that would be violating some norm of rationality or violating evidentialism. So that's the argument. Sorry, that was kind of long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's fine. And I think, um, I mean, there, there's a bunch of other cases where we have kind of control over our beliefs that people just forget about. So suppose I want to believe that there's a bunch of daffodils in a vase on the table in the next room. All I have to do is go out, pick some daffodils, put them in a bar, vase and put it on the table, right? So, um, and I mean, and that's a gen, that's just kind of illustration of a much more general point. Suppose I want to have a lot of true beliefs about quantum mechanics. There's a kind of straightforward path. We'll read a textbook. You're <laughs> right, to, yeah. to, to that as well. And so, in fact, we do exercise quite a lot of control over the cultivation of our beliefs. And the kind of oldest stuff about voluntarism, to some extent, is, I imagine, is about those kinds of cases. It's not about, it's not necessarily about what I think is much more contentious, that in the permissivist cases, you can just choose to go one way or the other. Um, but I, I, mean, I agree absolutely that focusing on the, you know, can I believe right now that there's a wild tiger in the room isn't um, very helpful in thinking about the full range of ways in which we actually do 
control, cultivate, and so on our beliefs. Anyway, so that was a one thing that I wanted to say. Uh, I do on the the intrapersonal versus interpersonal permissivism. Of course, the kind of permissivism that I was really happy to grant is the kind of um, in is is between people. Uh, I mean, if you're at all sympathetic to something like subjective Bayesianism, you're just going to think that that, that as against white, that that kind of um, permissivism is, is, is perfectly fine. It's less clear to me, but uh, I've, in the things that I've written about this, I've never ruled it out, that, that it might be, that it applies within a single person. So given you know, all of the stuff that you might consider as your evidence, there's a lot of flexibility left about what you might believe and not. I actually just don't know what to think about that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I yeah, I agree. I think it's, it's an interesting question. And, um, you know, I think a lot of permissivists are definitely, like you said, more on board with the interpersonal case than the intrapersonal case. But uh, one argument, actually, Laura Callahan makes this argument um, in a recent episteme paper that I think is super interesting. So she's like, look, what's the biggest, arguably, like motivation for this interpersonal permissivism? Well, it's the idea that we can have different epistemic standards. So you, Graham, might value simplicity and I might value explanatory power, right? Or we might you know, just like way different theoretical virtues differently, or, uh, you know, we just might process evidence differently for a variety of reasons. And so we might have the same evidence, but disagree and both be rational because we're just weighing or interpreting that evidence differently. Um, and one thing that, that Laura talks about in that paper that I think is super interesting is she actually thinks these epistemic standards that determine the way we interpret evidence and weigh evidence, they're not just like passive features of our psychology that we have no control over. She actually thinks we can form and shape and mold them and even like make a decision to, you know, embrace certain theoretical virtues over others or weigh evidence in certain ways. And what I think is, is cool about this argument is that it takes this super common, almost all permissivists accept that uh epistemic standards at least maybe not all but a lot of them are into this like different epistemic standards established interpersonal permissivism and then i think clears a really nice path for intrapersonal permissivism if we allow individuals to sort of shape and mold their epistemic standards um i think a lot of this probably goes beyond like the subjective bayesianism picture because that is kind of a thin picture um i think that you could accept that full picture but just build a lot of stuff into it about you know, what conditionalization actually looks like and how do we get those new probabilities from our old probabilities and our evidence. Um, and maybe you think there's different permissible ways we might weigh that that could sort of spit out different probabilities. Um, but then there's also the question of a belief, right? So you might, I mean, it depends on the relationship between belief and credence, but you might think uh, subjective Bayesianism can't tell the full story about rational belief. And so then you might appeal to some of this stuff to to talk about permissivism about belief as well. Yeah, so so I'm definitely not a subjective Bayesian. Okay. I, didn't, <laughs> yeah. I didn't think that that was the full story. I just thought yeah, that yeah, yeah. it's okay. a very straightforward illustration. I mean, even, even if that was your position, clearly you're going to be a permissivist, right? The only Bayesians who are not permissivists are the kind of weird ones that think, think that there's an objective set of priors, right, that, that you're kind of obliged to have. So. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so one of the things that's interesting about um, the picture that you were just sketching is uh, about the extent to which you could have the endpoints in mind when you're sort of moulding your epistemic standards. Because you might think that just sort of engaging in certain kinds of inquiry, maybe doing some epistemology or something like that, may well lead you to end up with um, different epistemic standards from the ones that you've got now, but you don't know where that's going to go. And I might be on board with the former idea and not the latter, thinking mm -hmm. that you can sort of, you know, I'm going to end up being a person who really doesn't care much about simplicity, but I really care about explanatory power. Not that that's a real example, but, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, so I, I agree. I mean, I, I guess I, you know, I don't know that I'm, I like Laura's argument. I, I don't know what, what, I haven't fully thought about it. But I think if I had to take a stand, I would like to say that they can be shaped in both ways. Sometimes they're shaped in ways that aren't in our control and sometimes they're shaped in ways that are in our control. Um, but I totally think like, just think about like a freshman who goes into a philosophy class and like reads Descartes or Hume. Like arguably what's happening is that their standard for rational belief is like, instead of it being like, oh, I just need this much evidence to rationally believe, it's going like way up and they're becoming like much more skeptical. So I totally agree that this happens and that seems like a case where it sort of happens to them. Um, and yeah, it's interesting to think like, could they then respond to that and like make a decision and say, no, no, no. I mean, they might not even fully comprehend that that is what's happening, but say like, that's just too high of a standard. We don't have to be able to prove that we're not brains in a vats in order to believe that we have hands. And then maybe they could lower that standard. So I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm not, like I said, I don't have like a fully formed position on this, but I think it's really interesting. <laughs> Yeah, so it might also be that you have some control, but not very precise. I'm thinking about um, something that you know, David Lewis talking about Bob Adams and not wanting it to come out that he had to think that Bob's views were irrational mm. right? and that that had an influence. It didn't determine exactly necessarily the form of <laughs> David's epistemological views, but it influenced it in certain directions and not in others. And you might think that there's a lot of that kind of thing that goes on as well. So that's kind of, it's not all the way to sort of fully precise things, but it still has an effect. Yeah, or maybe even some level of like indirect control over your epistemic standards, even depending on which epistemologist you spend a lot of time reading, right? So, so yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, there's, I guess, like, there's a big question. Do you accept this strong kind of interpersonal uh, permissivism about theism, right? But I think if you do, you can both argue that we have a much more direct control over our beliefs when wagering, and you can get the result that you can take Pascal's wager, make it about belief, and not violate evidentialism. So maybe the the whole interesting uh, part of that claim is just resting on the truth of the antecedent. But um, I do think permissivism has a role to play in Pascal's wager, especially in these more like epistemological kind of aspects of the wager. Okay, so now what else? What haven't we talked about from yeah. the, the list of things <clears throat> that we had at the beginning? Um, 
I'm not sure. Is there anything that you think that we that, that you brought up that we haven't in in the in the introduction that we actually now haven't examined at all? I think. I mean, it seems like we hit quite a bit of it. Um, I mean, I'm curious what you ultimately think about like the mini gods mixed strategies thing. Um, I mean, I feel like at some point maybe you were saying, or maybe it was a different article. I was looking at your article, Infinity and Pascal's Wager, but, um, but, but maybe the thought is like, we just get a much weaker claim if we kind of incorporate it so that probabilities matter in this way. Um, but I, I'm kind of curious, like what, what kind of at this point your judgment is about the success of those objections. Like, do you think we can incorporate them into the wager and maybe just weaken our claim a little bit? Or is your view that for some reason, um, you know, we should, yeah, I don't know. Like what, what's the status of yeah. like probability and infinities and all that? Uh, um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I kind of just kind of vacillate in different contexts. <laughs> I say different kinds of things. I'm not sure. So, uh, It depends a lot. I mean, this is one of the things I wanted to say at the beginning is that it really, it really matters. You have to decide exactly what the version of the wager is that you're talking about before you decide what you're going to say about it. And in arguing about gods, I had, I had a particular version in mind. It was one that had a infinity in there mm. and it had a bunch of uh, probabilities. And there's lots of things to say against that. Um, particular argument, sort of the the kind of what at least up until 10 or 15 years ago was kind of the standard dominating expectation version of the wager argument. There's a lot more different arguments out there now, and those different arguments probably require, well, I mean, they do. I mean, there's part of the kind of this is part of the general idea behind arguing about gods, right? Every every argument deserves its own attention, right? And there'll be different things to say about the arguments, right? So yeah. there isn't a kind of general thing, I think, to say about Pascal's wager and the many gods objection or Pascal's wager and the Duff Hayek objection. There are definitely versions of Pascal's wager that in my view are just defeated by those arguments. But that leaves it open, the kind of interesting question, the question that you're more interested in exploring is there are these other versions of the argument and now we have to decide about them. What are we going to say in connection with them? And maybe for some of them, those objections just don't get any bite. I, know, I think that um, it's kind of plausible. So the paper that you were just talking about, the one that I wrote for Paul Bartha, right? That his, it looks like, I mean, his kind of relative utility theory, you do escape those objections. And similarly, uh, in the kind of salvaging Pascal's wager paper, it looks as though you've got a kind of route that enables you to run around those objections as well. Um, that seems fine. The question then will be, so what else? What are the other things? What are the... What what are what are the problems that you might see with those arguments? Um, so, yeah. and it is, I don't know. This is kind of a, a, a general thing that you you can't kind of stock up 
objections to arguments and then just kind of will them out when you come across an argument that belongs to that family. You have to go back and look at the details of the argument every time. Right? Yeah. So, so I'm quite prepared to accept that um, that, that there's there's no single kind of magic bullet that shoots down every conceivable version of Pascal's wager, it would be quite surprising if that turned out to be the case. Yeah. Yeah, cool. No, I, I, I totally agree with you. Um, and yeah, there are certain things about the argument that are weaker because you're, you know, doing things in light of the many gods objections and the mixed strategies objection. I'm not wait, I'm not giving an argument for any particular religion and I've outlined several ways that you could even be rational to be an atheist and accept my argument right so uh in some sense it is it is weaker but it's it's clear to me that we have to do something to deal with the many gods and mixed strategies thing and i actually think it's kind of interesting how uh in a lot of cases whatever we do for one can help with the other uh, maybe not always but it does seem like um those objections tend to they're they're like related in a certain way but so that was one thing. The other thing is, so I've spent a lot of time recently just thinking about arguments in general and what mm -hmm. they're good for, what you can do with them. And uh, one of one of the thoughts that I've been trying to do a lot with is the idea that really theories prior to argument, what you say about arguments really depends upon the theory that you mm -hmm. accept. It, I mean, in the following sense, at least, if we think about deductive arguments, uh, and we focus on the ones that are valid, which ones you say are sound just depends upon where you think the truth lies. Uh, and so uh, we can have this conversation about which arguments are sound, but it's really not that interesting. The kind of interesting question is about the theories, which is the true theory. And so there's this question about what arguments might do for you. But I'm also starting to think that what's important about Pascal's wager is not that it's an argument, right? So in the book, I present an argument, right, that's constructed around Pascal's wager. But what I think, what, rather you should think about it in the following way. There's this decision theoretic calculation that you can do that seems to have tell you to do this thing. How do you respond to that? Now, it's not an argument anymore, right? It's a kind of a practical problem to mm. respond to. And so... I also have this kind of inclination not to think about Pascal's wager as an argument. I don't know what you think about all of that, but. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I kind of want to hear more about this idea that like the interesting questions about the theory, maybe uh, I want to understand what exactly you mean by that. So I guess I would like to think, and maybe I'm just a idealist of some sort, that there's theories and there's arguments. And of course, the background theories that we accept are going to affect what we say about arguments and how plausible we find certain premises and you know we might even like do some morian shifts or whatever right but i think at the same time i would like to think that the reflective equilibrium goes in both ways and sometimes arguments can change what theory we accept and so it's not just it's not that theories prior to arguments it's that they kind of work together um but like yeah i mean aren't don't you think that there are cases where because of an argument someone changes the theory that they advocate for? I mean, maybe I'm just asking for clarification yeah. about what you mean. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So the kind of, if you pick up a textbook on argumentation, 
it will tell you that a good argument is one that has two features. One, that the conclusions are proper, appropriately related to premises, and the other one is that the premises have certain properties. Now, I think there are good arguments, but they just don't fit that form. They're called reductios. Whenever you have a reductio argument, so, um, so, so somewhat, let's imagine it's a kind of two-way exchange, and you point out to someone that there's a contradiction in their views, and you give them the derivation if they need it. That's good. It's good for them. Their views were um, contradictory. That was a bad thing from their point of view. They should try and sort it out. It doesn't tell them what to do, though. And, mm. of course, that kind of argument is extremely important, right? Yeah. And, and, and you can generalise from that. Uh, it might be that, it's, that the unnoticed consequence of your beliefs isn't absurdity, as in the case of reductio. It's just that there's some claim you hadn't noticed you were committed to. And learning that can be very valuable as well. So, of course, there's a role for arguments. It's the other kind of argument, the one where you say um, premises and conclusion. And, and what's good about this is the virtues of the premises. There I have a hard time figuring out what that could... <laughs> What, what the value of that can be if we're imagining two people who've got theories who are in conversation with one another. Because if, I mean, let's let's make it more concrete. Suppose it's an argument with the conclusion that God doesn't exist and it's got a bunch of premises. And um, we're just, you and I are just going to disagree almost certainly about some of the premises in that argument, assuming that it's valid, right? And it's just actually going to get us nowhere. Right. I mean, if I couldn't win by saying God doesn't exist, I can't win by saying premise one, premise two. Therefore, God doesn't exist because the disagreement just goes back up to the premises. So that's sort of the sort of the idea. It's not it's not an anti-argument view. It's just that you have to remember what kinds of arguments could actually do useful work and which ones it's saying can't. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I guess I'm thinking like. I think there are cases where, like, I think this genuinely happened to me with, like, some of the stuff about free will and libertarian free will, where I accepted some conclusion, and then I saw some argument, and I was like, dang, I got to change my view. Um, and, and this was in virtue, it wasn't a reductio either, I don't think. It was an argument, uh, you know, for a conclusion that I disagreed with. So, so yeah, I mean, I think I get, I totally get what you're saying. And I think like, if P then Q, P there for Q, that's not the full story. Reductives have a role to play. Theory has a role to play. I mean, all of this stuff kind of comes together uh, to determine what we should believe and what philosophical views we should have, right? But but I guess I I I, I guess I think like all of it happens. And and yeah, I mean you. A lot of people will respond to an argument that has a conclusion they disagree with by saying one of the premises must be false. But I think a really, really compelling, interesting argument is one with premises that just seem like they got to be true and a conclusion that just seems like it's got to be false. I mean, that's almost more like a paradox, right? But I, I've, I've experienced arguments like that, and, and, and I am significantly less confident in certain kinds of free will, for example, accordingly. So, so that one does sound to me, I mean, you said paradox, but it's very close to inconsistency, 
if it seems to me the premises are all true, it seems to me the conclusion's false, and it seems to me that the conclusion is a logical consequence of the premises, then yep. my doxastic state is very uncomfortable. And I agree. There, um, although you can... I mean, sometimes you have to tolerate that for a long time because you just can't see what to do. But but you don't want to be in that state. You want to move away from it if you can. And that just means, by my lights, that's a great argument, right, for you. Yeah. Right? But it's not But it's not of the form that I was objecting to, right? The, mm -hmm. Right. It's precisely of, I mean, it's in the ballpark of reductio. Maybe you don't when you're kind of in this, you know, sort of paradoxical situation. You don't yeah. quite want to say that you've got a reductio, but you've still got the same kind of thing, right? There's clearly pressure on you because there are features of your view that are less than optimal. Right? I mean, whereas, still... whereas merely dis mere disagreement isn't, um, I mean, for philosophers, that's not a problem about sort of suboptimality. That's just the normal state of affairs. We disagree about <laughs> everything. Right, right. I mean, maybe one lesson is that many arguments can be just framed as reductios. That's interesting, I guess. Um, so that that might be one way of putting the lesson. I mean, I guess you could. Hmm, right. So every argument can, at least classically. Yeah, right, right, right. right. Classically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. For sure. So, but then, and, and in our everyday lives, lots of us are classical, so. Yeah. I mean, there's also the case where there's the conclusion that I either am sympathetic to or I agree with, and then I learn of a new good argument for that conclusion, and then I become significantly more confident, or maybe I'm, you know, withholding belief, but like leaning one way, and then I form the belief. Um, but, is that a reductio? <laughs> so, so, so that might be going too quick, though, because... Right. Uh, I think that if you if you believe some things and then you discover that actually some of the other things that you've got are evidence for those things, then that sort of somehow or other improves your position because you hadn't realised that there was this evidential connection. It's not clear that kind of mere logical consequence has the same has the yeah. same standing. That's not obvious to me either. I mean, and you want to distinguish between the kind of relate explanatory relations and logical yeah. relations um again i'm I, so my current project is kind of working on this stuff and trying to sort it out and i can't say that i'm very clear about it yet but but i do have this suspicion that we kind of in some areas of philosophy we kind of make a fetish out of argument in a way that we shouldn't so yeah but the last thing i, I might say about that is i guess it's not clear to me that in every case where you find the premises plausible and the conclusion is something that you're already sympathetic to, that you already have the evidence. Like, couldn't the premises be new pieces of evidence that for whatever reason you are inclined to accept? Right, um, right. So, yeah. so, but it might also be, right, um, suppose the, I mean, I, I don't know, if you're just prepared to take my word for something, then all I have to do is say it and you'll accept it. Um, in that kind of case, if if my giving you the argument means that you just accept the premises, I didn't really. Maybe I didn't really need to give you the argument. I just needed to give you the premises, right? Because that way you acquired the evidence. That would be the. So yeah. I mean, yeah. No, I mean, 
No, I see what you're saying. And if it's like, especially cases of like a priori truths that you just kind of see that they're true. Uh, there's a debate actually there, right? About whether those are already part of your evidence and you just yeah. see, or you can actually like get new evidence in the form of this a priori reasoning. That's, that's interesting. I don't know if I have a, a view on that. Yeah. Yeah. So I need to think about that. I don't have yeah. a very clear view about that either. Hmm. This might be a good time to jump into the Q&A as I do want to respect both of your time, both of your times and want to say, folks, are at the at the moment, Dr. Oppie does not have a link in the description, though we may, if there ever is one, we'll, we'll be happy to add it. And then Dr. Liz Jackson is also linked in the description right now. So want to encourage you folks, we really do appreciate our guests. You can check out that link in the description and want to encourage you to be your regular friendly selves and attack the arguments instead of the person. We'll jump into the questions Right now with Aram Tejamal. Thank you very much for your question. Said God is not applicable to waging and Pascal's reasoning. What if this is an analytical truth? Namely that first sentence. They say, what conclusions can be drawn? Question for Dr. Oppie. Uh, okay, you're going to have to repeat the sentence. It didn't sound like an analytical truth to me. <laughs> You got it. It was a uh, quote. God is not applicable to waging or wagering and Pascal's reasoning, unquote. Okay, so if you mean something like God's God's not amenable to it, right? God's not going to look favorably on somebody who comes to belief by uh, following the Pascalian reasoning. I don't think that that's a kind of truth by meaning. I suspect that you'll just find disagreement about whether it's true at all. I'm sure that Liz is not going to think that it's true. And I guess I'm not inclined to think that it's true either. You got it. Thanks very much. And same second question. This one to Dr. Jackson said, will heaven as a final outcome be necessitated for all those who agree with Pascal's reasoning? Say 95% of people agree. Hmm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> so will heaven as a final outcome be necessitated to all of those who agree with Pascal's reasoning? I mean, I suppose you could agree with Pascal's reasoning and say uh, there is a rational requirement to wager, but then choose not to wager. Maybe you're in an Ocratic state of some time when... You know, you believe you shouldn't eat the chocolate cake, but you eat it anyway, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would say, I okay, first of all, like, I don't know. I'm not, the, I'm not God. I can't tell you who's going to go to heaven and who's not. Um, but I also don't think that just agreeing with Pascal's reasoning is the same thing as actually taking Pascal's wager. So um, it seems like there's a distinction to be made between those two. You got uh, it, thanks. Could we, could, we add to, could we add to that? I mean... Uh, suppose you think that the wagering argument is good. Do you have to do it right now? Mm, yeah. Uh, or can, it, can can you just postpone it for a bit? And then you get unlucky because you get run over by a bus or something. But uh... yeah, no, that's that's interesting. That's a an interesting kind of follow up question. Um, and then maybe there's there's questions about risk there too. Like if I could wager later. I mean, this comes actually down to like the paying a finite price for some infinite good and to what extent we should do that. And if I could wager later, I am taking a big risk. I'm lowering the chance I get infinite utility, but what finite outcome is that worth paying? 
Um, and it might, the answer might just be like, it depends on the situation, you know? You got it. And this one from Tom's chair, appreciate it, said, now they're, they're quoting Liz that are saying, Dr. Jackson dis- defined the wager as, quote, reasonable belief in God. And they asked, for you, Dr. Oppie, they say, does that match your definition? And they say, I thought it was a bet on a person's belief in a God. Okay. Um, say it again. You I'm, bet very, they say, I'm starting to tire. So. No worries. <laughs> they, say, they say, Dr. Jackson defined the wager as, quote, reasonable belief in God. But does that match your definition, Dr. Oppie? So I don't think that Liz said that they defined the wager as reasonable belief in God. Uh, what what I thought Liz said was that you could reasonably come to believe in God by following through on the wager. Uh, and uh, there's nothing that I said, even in back when I wrote Arguing About Gods, I think, that ruled that out. There was this idea that, that Resha had that maybe the... Uh, the, the the kind of wager inference was a reasonable thing for some people to do. The main thing that I'm interested in, or at least I was when I was writing Arguing About Gods, is that there's lots of different classes of people for whom the, oh, the, the um, inference is not obligatory. You bet. And then Tom Scher, for you, Dr. Jackson says, won't God be able to know you only believed on a bet? Yeah, no, this is great. So this comes down to that question of motives we talked about earlier. And maybe I'll just say a little bit more about uh, this objection, but then point you to a paper also. So um, here's the basic thought. Look, not everyone who takes Pascal's wager automatically has good motives. I already said that. But I think it's possible to wager in the following way. If God exists and I make this commitment to God, that would be a very good thing. There's this powerful, this good being that created the universe. This is someone I would want to pursue and have a commitment to. So even if I think it's unlikely that God exists, uh, I still have a strong reason to pursue this relationship with God because knowing such a being would be incredibly valuable. And I think you could you could call that a bet. You could say that's just gambling or something. But I think that's the kind of betting that God would be pleased with. And so... I have a paper, it's called Faithfully Taking Pascal's Wager, and I, I talk more about that in that paper, and then I also bring Pascal's Wager uh, kind of into conversation with some of the recent accounts of what it is to have faith in God. And I try to show that taking Pascal's Wager can actually be a way of, of demonstrating genuine faith that God exists. So check out that paper, and I also have a video on my YouTube channel of uh, me like giving giving the paper at a conference, so you can check that out too. You got it. Thank just, you very much. What, just one little um, finger on that one. Uh, so it's, I mean, we are talking about something that potentially will last for quite a long time. Like you might decide now to wager. It may well be that you will be transformed subsequently, and that the motives that you have right now will just be completely irrelevant. I mean, that's a different yeah. kind of point to the one that Liz was making. And that was a point that I made in, I think, somewhere in arguing about gods. Right? So so you don't really have to worry you know, so much about um, whether this is a glorious motive or not, uh, at least in lots of cases. 
You got it. Thank you very much. And this one, coming in from Mark Reed, says, Liz, wouldn't hedging your bets, quote-unquote, and worshiping all religions to cover the all-gods outcome result in an unmanageable life of religious ceremony? Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, I think uh, that is something that you also need to take into consideration when wagering. And I think that could also be something too that uh, does isn't just apply to hedging bets, but if a certain religion makes like totally unreasonable demands on what you ought to do to the point where you couldn't even convert if you wanted to or something, then that seems like a cost to that religion, right? So, so yeah, I agree. That's that's a cost to this uh, very extreme bet hedging strategy. I mean, maybe one thing you could say is hedge your bets to the extent that you can. Um, but yeah, if if a type of wagering requires you to do something that is truly impossible, maybe you should think: is this actually impossible or not? Like, again, some people think you can't control your beliefs at all or whatever, and that I, I don't think that that is true. Um, but, yeah, then I think that counts against that style of wagering. You got it. This one from Ben Jackson says, Liz spitting straight fire, though. Oh, that's my brother. That's really sweet. Love it. <laughs> Raw nakedness says, what if God only lets atheists into heaven? What are your thoughts Dr. Jackson, about this atheist favoring God potential. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit. Um, so the idea, at least behind my version of the wager, is that you should wager in a way that gives you a higher chance at getting some infinite good. So if you think that being an atheist gets you the highest chance at going to heaven, then on my version of the wager, um, I don't really... I, I'm say okay, fine. You know that's the that's how you think the highest chance at getting into heaven is. So uh, we can then talk about whether that's a reasonable belief to have. Uh, but my version of the wager doesn't really speak to that. Um, I do think, in fact, most people probably will think that practicing or wagering on a traditional religion would be more likely to get them infinite utility than being an atheist. But yeah, I think um, this is one of the ways you can kind of get out of being religious, but still accept most of what we say in that paper. Uh, one way to get around this would be trying to ar like give arguments that raise the probability of a certain religion, but that would be separate from, from Pascal's wager. So, so I'd like to say something about this one too. Um, there is something a bit odd about the idea of thinking, for example, that, well, you know, if there were a God, what God would do would, would, be to reward people who acted rationally and morally by their own lights, uh, and then making a calculation according to Pascal's wager and arriving at the decision that you should not believe in any of the gods. I, it doesn't feel entirely consistent to me. It feels more like that if you had that view, you might think, oh, look, this whole wagering business is just irrational. I'm not going to engage in it at all and that's how and nonetheless it just turns out that because god's disposed in a certain way that turns out to be the pathway to heaven um i don't know maybe there's something incoherent in all of that but hmm. you got it thank you very much this one coming in from brute facts podcast says question for both would an externalist epistemic justification like reformed epistemology or proper functionalism increase the power of Pascal's wager, i.e. if belief in God was properly basic? 
Hmm. Trying to think about the connection there. Um, I mean, it might be that this would speak, so we didn't get into this as much, but there's sort of two uh, parts uh, maybe to Pascal's wager. The first is like what credences or beliefs and preferences you have. Uh, and then whether those are rational. So that's kind of one question. And then you can kind of put those into decision theory to uh, get results about how what you ought to do. And so maybe this would sort of, I, I'm curious what you think, Graham, but play into that first step. And maybe the idea would be that people's credences in theism that are high, more of those are, are rational uh, if, if theism is properly basic. And so then if you're putting these credences into Pascal's wager, uh, you would both be rational in sort of this creedal sense and decision theoretic sense. I don't, that's the best I can come up with. Maybe I'm not thinking of something though. Yeah. So, so the, one other thing to think about here is the connection between belief and credence and how we're putting those together, because you might think that, um, what, what, what you're going to get out of the reformed epistemology is that it's going to be kind of properly basic to have a credence that's at least 0.5, but possibly quite a bit higher than that. And if you've got that, it's going to make it look as though the Pascal's calculation is going to come out favourably. Right. Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, the other thing I wanted to say is, though, you have to think about what the use of Pascal's wager is. You're not going to be giving it to people who already have a properly basic belief in God. So, well, can I can I say one last thing? Yeah. Sorry, James. Um, one thing that I think is really interesting is the use of the wager for people that are already religious but have very serious doubts about their religion, um, and it could show that you're actually rational in, in continuing to. Uh, continuing with that religious commitment, even in the face of uh, very serious doubts. And one thing that I actually like about this is I think it enables religious people to take objections like the problem of evil or the problem of divine hiddenness very seriously. And uh, But nonetheless, those don't require you to give up your religious commitment if, if Pascal's wager works. So I actually think it's interesting to apply it to both skeptics and religious people. That might bring us back to something that we sort of got mentioned early on, but we didn't end up pursuing further. I mean, if you think that doubt is going to be modelled by kind of vague, you know, interval credences, then there's just a kind of question maybe about how low down the the, the, the lower bound on doubt can go, because otherwise we'll get back into that question about, okay, so what happens if it goes all the way to zero? Yeah, no, this is actually something I've uh, been thinking about and working on, actually not even just about the theistic case, but uh, you might think like, here's an interesting view about the attitude we should take towards philosophical theories more generally, uh, believe them, but lower our credence in light of, you know, all this disagreement and and stuff like that. And so so this question comes up pretty quickly, like how low can, can you make that credence, but continue to hold that belief? And I think that's that's a super interesting issue. Um, and if you do kind of let those pull apart a little bit, one thing I think is cool about it is it can let you kind of take a stand on, you know, your philosophical view, or maybe you have a commitment to not eating meat or a commitment to theism or whatever, but nonetheless give weight to this fact that smart people disagree with you and, and you're not very confident. So, yeah, there's there's a ton of interesting yeah, issues there. Right. So, <laughs> and, and you think that that sort of just goes beyond the kind of the fallibility that most people, the fallibilism that most people think 
is just proper to have with respect to your philosophical beliefs, in part because of the fact that there's just this disagreement amongst your kind of your peers, but also very often people that you think of in some sense as your superiors as well. So. Yeah, and it's funny how the disagreement literature is focused so much on peers, and I'm like, I mean, maybe as a simplifying assumption, that's that's useful, but I actually think there's like slightly above, slightly below, superior. Not, I mean, yeah. all of those have epistemic implications too. And, you know, maybe we just focus on the peer case to make it easier, but I really don't think this point that, oh, we have no epistemic peers. I actually don't think that that's that important as long as, you know, maybe they're in, on, on a par with you epistemically, or maybe they're, if they're slightly better, it seems like we should give them even more weight, you know, so. Right. So Brian Francis for quite a while has been writing stuff about that, but yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's interesting that it hasn't had as much uptake as, I mean, I think we agree it should have. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You got it. And EndoXD, thanks for your question. Must be people I don't know. They say York over Riseron. Is it Riseron? I'm scared to take predicate logic. Oh, <laughs> I think I think uh, this person met Ryerson. So yeah. York is, is better than Ryerson. I'm scared to take predicate. I think, although I've only been teaching at Ryerson for a year, so I'm not an expert on this. Well, may, is it Ryerson requires critical thinking, but I don't, maybe they require predicate logic for like philosophy majors or something. I'm not sure. Uh, but yeah, I know different schools have different kind of requirements. So maybe they're preferring York because of uh, they don't want to take logic and they would rather take critical. I don't know. So I'm guessing it's something about that. So. I see. Okay. Thanks for that. And then <laughs> yeah. Root, Root Facts podcast says, question for both. What are your thoughts on, quote, iterated mixed strategy by Montan and then collapsing into pure strategy of becoming a theist? Right. So, so the thought was that um, if you, I, I think from memory, so this is um, Monten's paper, that if if you were to go with a mixed strategy, uh, you would, and it, and it it gave you a no, you you got a certain result out that said don't wager. The, the question would then just immediately arise again. I can't remember, sorry, I'm getting very fuzzy, so I can't remember the exact details, but the idea was that you would just come back to the same decision point over and over, and so you might as well just move directly um, to the pure strategy. Um, Liz will be able to clarify this. You got it. Yeah, no, I think that's basically right. Um, yeah, I'm curious. I mean, I guess I think the mixed strategies objection fails for other reasons too. Um, I don't have like a strong view on on that. I guess maybe I'm sympathetic. I don't know. You got it. And then, folks, I can't take any more questions. So the questions that we have are the only ones I can cover these last several, just because we do want to respect the time of the debaters and get them out of here by two hours or less. So we have Josiah Hansen says, Dr. Oppie, please make your books available on Audible. <laughs> then we also have EndoXD says, Quote, pick most probable religion, unquote. Can we put a probability on something never shown to be possible, in parentheses, God? If so, what do you think of Hume, lesser miracle? Both of your thoughts, please. Hmm. Okay, so it depends what you mean by shown, right? <laughs> uh, there are plenty of people who think that it's possible that 
God exists. And it's it's a kind of hard road to argue that they're all irrational in that belief. Um, so uh, I'm not sure that what, that sort of following this line is going to lead to anything very interesting. So I'll let Liz say what she wants to say. Yeah, I mean, another kind of question that comes up with this this question is the relationship between possibility and probability. But I think a natural thought is to think God is possible is to assign some kind of non-zero credence um, to theism. And as we talked about, if you had like an infinitesimal credence in theism, maybe that would be a case where you think God is possible, but you shouldn't wager. So um, yeah, but I think in most cases of non-infinitesimal, non-zero credences, there's at least an interesting argument those people should take the wager. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers it, but. Gotcha. Then Brute Facts Podcast says, Dr. Jackson and Dr. Oppie tell James it was more fun on my show. Why, did you guys have a discussion already that, because we can link it in the description. I didn't know you guys already did. I hadn't seen it. Mm-hmm. No, we were just, I think if I was on the show. I'm oh, guessing, okay. Graham, you were too. So we were on yeah. it separately. Separate yeah, yeah okay. we were on it separately. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And it then, fun, yeah. <laughs> and Salas, thanks for your question, said, can Bayesian stats be used to bolster a Pascal-like wager? If so, how would we establish that the baseline data used to formulate Bayesian, Bayesian was reliable if we can't test for evidence of God claims? I wonder if what this question is referring to is this idea that your credences should be regular. So the thought behind regularity is that you should only assign probability zero to um, necessary falsehoods or things that could shown to be false a priori or something like that. So if you, and oftentimes Bayesians will say that that is a requirement on rational credences. So one way to kind of bolster the wager is by saying, look, you know, you might think, oh, just assign credence zero to theism, then I don't have to wager. But then if you buy this axiom, um, then according to Bayesian, Bayesianism, you'll be irrational. Um, and one thing Graham talked about is, well, you could, uh, there's other ways of going, right? So you could assign an infinitesimal credence to theism. You could assign a credence to theism that's vague over some interval that includes zero. So assigning credence zero isn't the only way to get out of it. But yeah, I do think um, this is a common response that you could give to someone who just assigns credence zero to, to theism or to all religions or something. So, so I can ask a question there. What about if you think that something's necessary a posteriori? Is it okay for that <laughs> to come out as a zero? Or are you required? I, I think it's quite tricky because the way that probabilities are usually defined it's over a possibility space. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's actually super interesting. I mean, and some people obviously think that that is an empty category. Um, but if you don't, yeah, I mean, it might just depend on the way you formulate the axiom of regularity. Um, and there might just be different ways to formulate it. But yeah, that that's actually, that might be a, a way to go if you think it's necessarily false, but in, shown a posteriori, I guess. I don't see a, an obvious reason to rule that out, but yeah, that's a, that's a cool question. This one from brute facts podcast says Dr. Jackson is going to get her ankles broken at the CC conference. I think that's capturing Christianity. 
Yep. Yep. I'm actually wearing my philosophy basketball shirt right now. You may have noticed. So it's Plato and Aristotle um, and they're both holding basketballs. So yes, I'm, I'm a basketball fan and we're going to play at the Capturing Christianity conference. So uh yeah i'm looking forward to that <laughs> that's awesome they put in parentheses eddie Kroom. is that the name of the person from brute facts podcast yep. okay gotcha. yep yep thanks for that eddie and then we got maybe just one or two more questions and then we'll wrap up here but want to say thanks so much ghost light for your question this is for liz they say does the idea that you can freely choose your beliefs to get a reward presuppose doxastic volunteerism already discussed if you anything that you maybe want to share that you hadn't covered already regarding that question yeah, maybe I'll just say briefly, I mean, the view isn't that you can control all of your beliefs. It does. I can't just make myself believe one plus one equals three because I want to believe that or something. Um, the view is that in very specific cases, and um, like I explained, there are these certain kinds of permissive cases. Um, we have some level of control over our beliefs. And then I also say that might not always be direct control. That might not be like, it's as easy to change my belief as it is to raise my hand, but we have a lot more control over our beliefs than we do uh, in cases where it's like just some thing is obviously true or obviously false. So it's not a claim about all beliefs. It's just a claim about some beliefs in certain situations. But in those situations, yeah, I do think doxastic volunteerism is true. You bet. And then Dogs Domain, thanks for your question, said, what if there was a God who didn't want us to believe in a God in any case and, quote, elected some people to go to hell and others to heaven by faking evidence really well? This is basically already covered, fair to say. Gotcha. Then. Yeah. And then Master QT one thanks for your question, said, for Liz, how do you know God isn't evil or partially evil? For instance, if a holy text was written by a God that was deceitful, it could look exactly like it looks now. Kind of different from the wager. Yeah, person, but... I think it's a little separate from Pascal's wager, but it is an interesting question. I mean, um, I haven't really worked on this or written on this, but there, there's been actually even think some discussion on YouTube uh, recently about this issue. But some some philosophers have suggested, look, uh, it seems like there's some evidence of design in the world. Maybe there's a creator, but there's also a lot of evil. And so it's at least not clear. We have reason to think that God is all good rather than God is all bad. And then I think at least one response to that is that it's in some way a simpler hypothesis if God is good. Um, you could also, I guess, appeal to some kind of divine revelation to try to establish that God is rather is good rather than evil. But yeah, this isn't one of my main areas of research, but I do think it's a super interesting debate. So, yeah. Right. So so you might think it's that the, the sort of supposing that there's all this deception going on is a slightly more skeptical hypothesis, right? mm. which sort of relates to your idea about simplicity. And so maybe it just gets a little bit less um, probability, but that will be enough, right, in the context yeah. of the, the wager argument. You got it. And then Iron Charioteer, last one. Thanks so much for your question. Said for Dr. Jackson, if Christians have the Holy Spirit, they cannot wager. So it's kind of, I think, an attempt to pit uh, some forms of Christian theology against your view, Liz. Say, so they say, so it seems the argument was designed for non-believers. How does the HS wager with non-believers? I mean, I guess I don't see why having the Holy Spirit would mean that you can't wager. I think that you can have the Holy Spirit and still experience doubt and still focus on the possibility that, look, if I wager on God and God exists, that'd be a very good thing. Uh, I'm not 100% sure that God exists. I have some doubts about it, but I'm nonetheless going to kind of continue in my commitment. So I actually think it's a really, really problematic thing that Christians say that 
you know, doubting is a sin, or if you truly have the Holy Spirit, you won't doubt. I just, I think that's both false and also doesn't do justice to things like the problem of evil and the problem of divine hiddenness. So, um, so yeah, I guess I just don't see a reason to think that some, I mean, depends on also what you mean by the wager, but showing that you can continue in your commitment, even in light of doubt, that to me, I see no reason to think that's inconsistent with having the Holy Spirit be with you and active in your life in some way. So that's how I would respond. You got it. Thanks very much. And folks, we are so thankful. I want to say, Dr. Jackson, Dr. Oppie, it has been a true pleasure. Thank you so much. We really do appreciate you spending your time with us. It is, it's been absolutely interesting. And I can tell you that the, the responses in the live chat, people have really enjoyed it. And so we really do appreciate you spending time with us tonight. Thanks so much for having us. This has been a really fun discussion. And, and thanks so much, Graham. I've really enjoyed this. Yeah, thanks. Um, thanks to Liz. Thanks to James. It was great. Yeah. My pleasure. Absolutely. And so, folks, as mentioned, links in the description. Highly encourage you. You can see Dr. Jackson link in the description right now. And then, as mentioned, if Dr. Oppie has one in the future, we're glad to throw it in the description. And so we really do appreciate our guests. Want to encourage you and say thank you so much. It's been a true pleasure. I'll be back in a moment, folks, with a post-credit scene on upcoming debates. So stick around for that. And thanks again. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.